This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. I've got a sign that I've had calligraphy that's over my door into my office, and it says, Politics is not about ideological purity or moral self-righteousness. It's about governing. And if you cannot compromise, you cannot govern effectively. And that's absolutely true. Politics is the art of the possible, and that requires compromising. You know, I'm not some guy that's just some crazy son of a bitch that wants to go out and, and pull dams out of the river. I want to look at what we want the Pacific Northwest to look like in 25 or 50 years, because the decisions we make today are going to make those determinations. I don't want these fish to go extinct. It would be a huge economic impact in Idaho. This episode comes to you from the Snake River and Lower Granite Dam in Washington and the Clearwater River in Idaho. This episode is the second in the cluster about Chinook salmon of the Lower Snake River of Idaho and their future. The first episode is Salmon 1, Mountain Origins. I do recommend that you listen to that episode first, as the information there informs this episode. In this episode, we go to Lower Granite Dam on the Snake River in Washington, which is the first of the four Lower Snake Dams. We learn about the dam, the work to help the downstream traveling salmon safely navigate past the dam, and how the four Lower Snake Dams are a problem for Chinook salmon and other anadromous creatures. We also speak with a congressman from Idaho who has taken the stand to say that the lower snake dams must be breached as the only method to prevent the salmon from going extinct. And we will review the new draft report from Senator Murray and Governor Inslee of Washington and again talk with Vice Chairman of the Nez Perce Tribe, Shannon Wheeler. We start off at Lower Granite Dam on the Snake River where it is really loud. There is about 20,000 CFS coming through the spillway, water moving through lots of pipes to support fish passage and we are on a fish barge that is loading up juvenile anadromous fish to transport them downriver. To refresh memories, anadromous fish are the fish that are born in fresh water, live their lives in ocean salt water, and return to the fresh water to spawn and die. At the dam, I am talking with Jay Hesse from the Nez Perce Tribe Department of Fisheries Resource Management. Jay begins by introducing himself. Jay Hesse. Work for the Nez Perce Tribe's Department of Fisheries Resources Management, and my official title is Director of Biological Services. Generally, my day-to-day -day activities is with hydro system management for the fish, both on a real-time basis of, of how, uh, when things go as unplanned, how do we adapt in season to do the best thing for the fish, how to strategically plan for the next year coming up so everybody's on the same page for operations like this, and then longer term strategic of what's needed uh, for the fish to be healthy and harvestable, survival rates that really bring back robust numbers of adults. So it's both long term and then you know real time type management for, for water management. These dams here, the dams upstream from here uh, that impact water flow coming downstream. Can you just tell us what we're doing, where we are, what's going on, all this infrastructure? So we're currently at uh, Lower Granite Dam, uh, Lower Granite Dam in the Snake River. Uh, we are about 40 miles downstream uh, of Lewiston, Idaho, Lewiston and Clarkston, Clarkston's in Washington. This is the uppermost dam that has anadromous fish passage on it, is going upstream. Uh, it is the eighth in a series of dams coming from the ocean uh, into the Snake Basin that anadromous fish have to 
navigate either over coming down or through coming down as juveniles and then up through as adults going upstream. Often, people think that the problem with dams for salmon and other anadromous fish is how the fish get around the dam when they are traveling upriver. That is a problem, but fish ladders are in place on the four lower snake dams, and they are effective. The biggest, most pressing problem for the fish is when the young juvenile fish are traveling downriver to the ocean. Their life history has been that they face upriver and simply ride the super-powerful, fast downriver current from the mountains to the ocean. Today, salmon still try and do that, but they hit these huge reservoirs, and that is where the problems begin, and many fish are killed and don't make it to the ocean. The fish that die at the reservoirs and dams are dying from the warm waters of the reservoir, or from predation by larger reservoir fish, from being shredded through the turbines and the dams that are creating electricity, or on the downstream side of the dam there can be gas bubbles created by the downforce of the water, and these gas bubbles can be deadly to fish. So there are great efforts made to help the young fish around the dams on the way down the river on their journey to the ocean. We're currently standing at one of the facilities of the juvenile bypass system. And it is a series of pipes and grates that guide the juvenile fish that are coming downstream trying to get to the ocean through the dam trying to avoid the turbines. The fish have really three passage routes that they can, they can take to get past this dam. They can go over the spillway, that's called surface passage. That has the highest survival rate. Where is, where is the spillway? So the spillway is off to our left here. Um, it is white, frothy water, spray coming up. Yep, yep. And that is about 20,000 cubic feet per second that is, is being spilled over the top, not being run through the turbine units currently. So if a fish goes through that part, if a juvenile goes through that spillway, while that's a real turbulent drop, that does not blend them up into little pieces. That's correct. And that's they the survive. High, highest survival route of all of the options here. Highest survival route and okay. less stressful. There's a cumulative stress yeah. of, of going through the powerhouse, which is either through a turbine or through this juvenile bypass facility. So you've got risks of being injured or killed going through those, through those mechanisms, but it's also very stressful. And as a fish experiences multiple powerhouses, what our research is showing us is that they have lower survival in the ocean. And so uh, the spill that's being routed over the dam here is an intentional effort to reduce the stress on fish, get them over this dam in the highest survival rate, but also with the lowest amount of stress going downstream. The containers that we're looking at here are called raceways. These are here to help sample the juveniles uh, so that we can understand their health condition, their abundance going downstream but they also serve as a way to capture some of these juveniles and then put them onto a boat and have a boat ride down below Bonneville Dam, past the next seven dams, so that they don't have to experience the spillway or the powerhouses uh, all the way down to the ocean. They can, they can just avoid that. The, the fish that come through this raceway, they're delivered through mechanisms, through whatever mechanism, over there to that barge, and that barge will go downriver past the, the next seven dams. Where is that last seventh dam? Is that Columbia or Snake? Uh, so the, the, the seventh dam downstream of here is Bonneville Dam, and it's in the Columbia River. Uh, there are four dams here in the Snake yep. River, Lower Granite being the first, Ice Harbor being the last. And then there's four more main stem dams, McNary, 
um, John Day, the Dalles Dam, and then Bonneville. The fish that are put into the barges are taken downstream of Bonneville Dam about 10 miles and then released uh, into, the, into the Columbia River there, upstream of the estuary, but, uh, and then they'll continue on to the ocean. That barged group of fish is uh, both hatchery and wild. It is, and multiple species. You don't have the ability to separate out origin of this fish or the species of fish going into those barges. What does that do, going in a barge ride like that, what does that do to their, because I understand that these fish have to kind of create a roadmap in their mind, in their brain, however you say that for a fish that size, that they know how to get back yep. to the mountain waters. It impacts it, it reduces their ability to, to um, uh, find the cues coming upstream. So there is uh, very solid data that shows that fish that are transported, put on a barge, uh, and taken downstream have a higher stray rate going into other areas that they didn't originate from than fish that swam down through the river as a, as a whole. So the, the, the stray rate from those barge fish is one of the complexities of, of trying to determine what's, how do we get the highest number of fish back uh, as adults. And so we have to take in the direct survival of, of comparisons of fish that are left in the river to, to migrate um, you know, past the dams versus fish that are put in a barge and the numbers of adults that return back. But then there's also a next conversion of can those fish adults that come back actually get to their natural spawning area? And it's a lower conversion rate, which is both concerning uh, because you don't get them back to their natural area, but those strain fish then can have uh, a negative influence on other natural populations by by their genetic material potentially making it into those those other populations. So then let's talk about the other side of this. And what I mean is in this infrastructure, there's over there, I think, right? That's the fish ladder? The fish ladder is upstream from us. So the entrance to the fish ladder, we'll see in a little bit, but there are multiple entrances in, in this dam for the fish to get into the fish ladder. One is gonna be on this right-hand side, the south side of the powerhouse. There's another entrance uh, in between the spillways and the left-hand side of the powerhouse. And then there's a third entrance on the, on the far side of the spillway. And then there's tunnels that go through the dam where the adults swim through. They'll get into a fish ladder, which is a series of steps that take the fish can then go up through either over each step or there's some holes through, through those uh, each, each ladder. When you say a, a steps, you mean like a kind of a waterfall step. Exactly. So they, 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 can, they can rise in elevation, but they stay wet yep. and alive. There's either a, a, a doorway that they can swim through um, or can jump over water going over each step to get the 100 feet up above this dam. So that's, that's a lot of effort built into this um, you know, this immense concrete river dam. How, how effective is that, that fish ladder, at helping the fish get up and over the dam? Generally, they're very effective. Uh, the biggest challenge that we have is fish finding the entrances to get into that. There's relatively very little water coming through those, those entry gates compared to the amount of water coming over the spillways or through the powerhouse. And they're kind of sensing upstream. They, they kind of want to go to where there's water flowing. Exactly. That's their system. And they're able to find those entrances. 
Nissan has a lot of trucks and cars to choose from. Today, we're going to look at their newly updated Frontier midsize truck. And in the middle of this episode, we're going to talk about their fully electric vehicles. The Nissan Frontier, this is a midsize four-wheel drive truck. It has a new look for 2022. Check it out. It's pretty sharp looking. This Nissan Frontier comes in two styles. They have the crew cab with four doors and a short or a long bed. Or they have the king cab model with a long bed. What is important to me in a truck is how much weight it can carry and pull. And what I really mean is, can the truck get me and a stack of riverboats and my river friends to the boat ramp? Does it drive and feel safe? And can it keep those speeds steady when we're driving uphill with all that load? That's my criteria. This new Nissan Frontier has a six-cylinder, 310-horsepower engine with a nine-speed transmission. That's providing a lot of power and a lot of smooth shifting of gears. And this truck can carry about 12 to 1,600 pounds in the truck, and it can pull a trailer with about 6,200 pounds of total weight. In riverboat terms, that is several boats and frames and boxes and coolers, all your dry bags and your water jugs that are full, and yes, even your friends or my friends, maybe all of them. Check out your Denver area Nissan dealers in person and online at www.nissanusa.com. Tell them. The River Radius Podcast sent you. Jay and I moved to a new location on the barge to talk about the value and outcomes of transporting fish downriver on a barge versus the fish swimming and why the barge is even needed to navigate the hundreds of miles of reservoir water. What are the benefits of transporting the fish down and this whole system, this whole system of humans helping the fish get around these dams? What's the benefits? The different management or innovation intervention in many ways of trying to get fish through this altered environment uh, from the Idaho border essentially down to below Bonneville Dam is 324 miles. And uh, that was historically a riverine, a, you know, a free flowing river. Uh, but the eight dams that are constructed through that reach have turned it into a reservoir. Uh, changed it from a free-flowing river into a series of impounded, lower-velocity habitats that uh, are different than what salmon and steelhead evolved with. The transportation program was established as a way to avoid or minimize uh, the mortality mechanisms of juveniles coming through the successive dams. The research that has been done over the, the decades now, uh, comparing the survival of fish that are put in barges versus fish that are left in river um, or, or routed back to the river that have gone through the juvenile bypass facility or over the dams, uh, over the spillway, there's kind of those three, three passage route options, show that the benefits of this transportation program vary, uh, differ, by species of fish. It, they vary by the origin of fish, so hatchery versus natural fish benefit or behave a little bit differently in the barges, as well as the in-river environment. So as um, more spill occurs, there's higher water velocities, fish tend to do better in the river. If we can actually, what we've demonstrated or shown is that if in-river survival, fish going over each dam or, or through the juvenile bypass, if their survival from Lewiston to below Bonneville is above 60%, then it's generally you get more adults back from fish that are in-river. 
But if in-river conditions are such that there's high water temperatures or low flows or low spill, and in-river survival is below 60%, generally you get more adults back um, from those fish being put into a barge. And so a lot of folks have said, well, why don't we just maximize the numbers of fish in the barges uh, from that standpoint? And for a long time, uh, that's what was done. 80% uh, or more of the juveniles that were coming done early on were, were collected at Lower Granite, Little Goose, and Lower Manuel, and McNary Dam, the first one in the Columbia. And we got more adults back from those than fish that were in river, but we weren't managing the river for in-river fish. It was not a healthy spot for those fish. The key thing, though, is while you got more fish back from those transported, it was still at a survival rate below what we identified as needed to have healthy and harvestable fish. So my analogy that I use with folks is going to the eye doctor and they start off and you know put the goofy glasses on you and, and, and you know is A better or B better? And, and so some, likewise you do that in, in lots of our research for transported versus in river. Is the barge better or is the in river better? And sometimes we say the barge is better and sometimes we say the in-river is better. But you still have to say, are things in focus? And bottom line is, we've not gotten to that point with either one of those routes getting to the ocean where you've selected your prescription that's good enough to live with. I think I'm hearing you say that, that, that these work, that this works. This barge will get these fish downriver, some of these fish will come back, these other systems work, the river, the river system where they come over the spillway, that works but the overall efficacy of these systems to, to really support the salmon, are you saying that that's just not working in the biggest picture? It's not there yet. And that's, and that's demonstrated by the low numbers of adult salmon that we come coming back. The hydro system, or whether they're in river or in barges, is not the only impact to the fish. What are the other impacts on the, on the fish that are preventing that, that greater success? Ocean conditions, uh, what we've seen with climate change and hot water in the ocean and changing species compensation predators in the ocean is a, is a big factor. Habitat in the freshwater uh, upstream of the dams has been impacted by a number of sources. Water removals for, for different purposes, whether those are communities, whether that's for irrigation. Mining and timber harvest have an impact on that freshwater habitat. So we have to look collectively at all of those things, and all of those need improvements. The largest impact as a whole, though, is associated with this main stem migration corridor and the changes to that environment. So some of that is the getting past the dams themselves. Some of that is the travel time that it takes juveniles now to get that through that 324 miles of reservoir environment. Historically, that took one to two days for juveniles to get from uh, Lewiston down to below Bonneville. Now, with the reservoirs in place, that takes 10 to 30 days. And, and what, what does that do to the fish? The extended uh, travel time has been shown to reduce survival and change the, the timing or environment when they get to the ocean and the estuary. And that's really key for the conditions there. It's real dynamic in the estuary of what's the best. There's no magic date to make, there, make it there. but. When a juvenile fish leaves its freshwater rearing environment, it's genetically or ecologically uh, thinking that it's going to take two days to get to the estuary. Its physiology is changing 
from that of a freshwater to a saltwater. And so uh, that physiological change to get into that estuary or saltwater environment is starting. The fish is assuming, you know, you know that that's going to happen fairly soon, um, as well as kind of the food shift. But then it takes two weeks. If you plan for a trip that's going to take two days, you put in your car, you know, a uh, six pack of water. But if that week, that trip gets extended out to two weeks and you didn't know it was going to take two weeks longer, you would have prepared a little bit differently. And so that has some impacts on survival. So the longer it takes, what we see is the, the lower the survival is, the higher the stress becomes on the fish. Lots of mitigation happening here at the, at the dam with, with these barges we're on, with the fish ladders, with uh, the, the, the overspillway option, when there's overspillway happening. Do you have other solutions that you would, you or the Nez Perce tribe that you represent in this, in this setting here, are there other solutions that you all feel are better? So we've tried for decades now to refine how fish get through the reservoirs and past the dams. And, and that's the infrastructure that you're looking at here. And we continue those efforts now with, with changing how water is spilled uh, over the spillways. But the science is fairly clear to have healthy and harvestable, to get uh, abundance and adult returns back, that there has to be a transformational change. And that really involves uh, breaching these four dams in the lower snake. What that means is uh, taking out the earthen portion of the dam. So on the far side of the river here is actually a big pile of dirt. We have the concrete powerhouse where the turbines are at, and then you have the spillway where the water gets spilled over the top of the dam, and then the navigation lock. But on the other side of that is a pile of dirt <laughs> that, that holds back. And so breaching is really the removal of that earthen portion, the dirt pile on the other side and the river would be routed around this concrete structure, the, the powerhouse would stay here. What that would mean is that the reservoir would no longer exist, the river would be transformed back into its river state. That would, um, uh, fish would just navigate around, bypass the concrete structures here. They would travel much faster. They would be back down to the, you know, the couple of days swimming. What we're talking about is four dams here in the Lower Snake. The four dams in the Lower Columbia would remain, um, but we've, the research shows that that's probably um, adequate for getting adult returns back uh, into the Snake Basin. As fish can manage the impacts of four dams, but these eight dams in total has just been too much. So a policy position of the tribe is to breach these four Lower Snake dams, to do that in a way that um, mitigates for the impacts to the other user groups, the communities that have been built up around here. So uh, to restore the fish, the fish and ecological connection, but also you know, do it in a way that provides resources for uh, the transportation of, of farm products, um, the, the transportation of other, uh, other materials up and down the river, uh, the replacement of the energy that is generated from these four projects. Uh, that maintains a reliable energy grid. Those take some economic resources uh, to establish, but we believe overall that that's, uh, folks are headed, or the world is headed that direction anyway, uh, with the development of, of solar and wind energy, and in particular combined with uh, battery storage uh, of that energy that uh, what is generated here is, is, is 
we have the technology in place now and that can be put in place. So if, if the dam is breached, as you just described, and, and so I'm gonna describe it for, for the river folks, that means the, the downstream river right side of this dam is a big earthen pile. I'm looking at a huge, huge pile of rock, very formed, very, very formatically established over there and holding back the river. And then the rest of this dam, which takes up, the, that, that includes the lock and the powerhouse part, which is uh, just an immense amount of concrete. It's 100 feet tall. I don't know. That looks like uh, several hundred yards across. We're talking 80% of the river. Um, you're saying that on the on the river right side, breach that out. The water flows past. There's no longer a reservoir. So with the breaching of, of this dam and the re, and the restored river channel, that becomes a much narrower, smaller river channel. Yeah. And so. Uh, there's really concentrated flow from stream bait to stream bait. They'll still be natural eddies, but they're much smaller and what fish are used to up in a free-flowing environment. So as those fish will come down through, you know, the 40 miles that's now reservoir, that will be 40 miles of free-flowing river. Uh, they really wouldn't detect any difference going around this concrete structure. That would just be a bend in the river. Uh, there will no mechanical advantages. The, the, um, uh, or, or equipment needed to route both juveniles down or adults up. It would be just volitional passage both directions for those fish. Under a breach condition now, there would be no more connection of the river with the powerhouse or whatever. That, this will be high and dry. Uh, the river channel would be low enough upstream of that that it would, just, it would just go right around. There's no more elevated water. This will just be a, a structure. So this is no longer a powerhouse. This is just concrete. So you're saying, you're saying leave this thing here as like some <laughs> memorial or whatever, just leave it because it's easier to leave it than it is to take out the concrete and just breach that side of the earth and leave this, this, this just becomes an obsolete, closed off, no trespassing kind of cement place. And, uh, you know, and a worst case scenario for fish, um, the powerhouse and spillway would be there for, for re-operation, re, you know, re-putting into place if fish went extinct and people decided that there was a need to have that as a power transportation nexus again, you would not have to rebuild the structure, just put the dirt back. Is, is this system of this massive concrete coming across the river with an earthen passageway on the side there, is that the same system at each of the, the next three dams downriver from here? That's correct. So breach, breaching is the terminology that's used rather than removal. Removal would mean taking out, destroying, just, you know, taking down the concrete structure. Breaching just means you're taking a, that, that dirt pile, kind of going around each one of those four that are designed. Uh, each dam is unique in its design, but each four has a commonality of that, that uh, earthen dike that could be removed. I spent half of my day at Lower Granite Dam moving around the fish house. I was listening and recording conversations and actions, interviewing, watching, learning. This is a massive, complicated, and humbly sophisticated operation. There were lots of people working here to literally get these young salmon and steelhead and other fish from the upstream side of the dam, either into the barge on the downstream side or simply back into the downstream river. And while I can see in the data that shows overall the dams are a real problem for the fish, that morning, I was witnessing hard-working folks supporting fish. People wearing heavy work boots and work pants and coats, hard hats, gloves. 
the tugboat handlers, the mechanic, the driver, the fish handlers, the biologist. It was really loud and fast-paced, and everything had to be damn near perfect, and they were making it happen. We witnessed all of this and then watched the barge untether from the dock, drift out, and make a big, slow 180-degree spin turn in the river and begin its downstream journey to the ocean side of the last dam on the Columbia River. I wondered if those fish will make it. And I think of all the people at Lower Granite Dam making the effort to get the fish on the barge who probably believe the fish will make it. Maybe they will. You know, all of these efforts, everybody that's down here is doing stuff to help the fish. I mean, that's what we're all about. Now, where we're not always on the same page is, is that enough to achieve the ultimate goals? But in no way do I discount what Elizabeth and these crews do down here because this is essential for keeping the wheels on the cart. When these efforts weren't going on early on in the hydro system operations, survival was really bad. And so the, these kind of things have taken us a big step forward. The question is, is that step big enough for long-term sustainability? You know, our position has been no. It, it certainly is better than the no actions. And, and so that's a fine line of communicating that message of this is good stuff for fish, but is it sufficient? And, and so if, if, you're, if the person visiting's perspective is um, just, you know, are we doing positive things for fish? They, they walk away and, well, why do we need to do any more? And that, that's a fine line to walk because, you know, I don't want to discredit the efforts that are going on here. Because this is, the, for, for doing the best thing for fish as they come through the dam, this is the best we know how to do. Nissan has been building fully electric vehicles for 12 years and has over 5 billion miles on this fleet as a testament to their efficacy. That is billion with a B. Nissan has two electric vehicles to choose from, that is the Leaf and the new Aria. Both of these electric vehicles can handle most day runs on the river. You can put your friends in the car with you, you can have your boats loaded on the roof or in the hatch. You can throw a bike on a bike rack and run your own shuttle. The Nissan LEAF for 2022 has a range between 150 and 225 miles. This is a smaller car with four doors and a hatchback. You can easily add a roof rack system. You can also fold the seats down for inside cargo space. The second vehicle from Nissan is the new Aria. This will be available in the fall of 2022 and you can reserve this car now. This is a slick looking four door SUV, has lots of comfortable features and a range up to 300 miles and they even have an all wheel drive model. Again, you can reserve that Nissan Aria now. Check out your Denver area Nissan dealers in person and online at www.nissanusa.com. Tell them the River Radius podcast sent you. I have been able to travel around Idaho numerous times by highway and river, and it is quickly clear that salmon are enmeshed in the culture of Idaho. Several rivers have the name salmon in them, a town, restaurants, outfitters. They are part of sculptures and displays. Salmon blend amongst the people of Idaho and the Pacific Northwest in ways that people themselves cannot. In early 2021, one of the federal congressmen from Idaho put forth a proposal to breach the four lower snake dams. This was a big, loud statement that, like a salmon, was drifting across many perceived boundaries. That is not to say it was a welcome proposal in all neighborhoods, but it was now on the table. This proposal upped the game of considering salmon extinction or survival. 
Here, I speak with Congressman Mike Simpson about his proposal to breach the Lower Snake Dams. Can you tell me your name and your job title? Michael Simpson. I am the congressman from Idaho's 2nd Congressional District. And can you tell me about your relationship with the rivers of Idaho and with the salmon of those rivers? Well, it is, uh, you know, most people in Idaho live in Idaho because we love the outdoors. Uh, We love our mountains, our forests, our lakes, and our rivers. And uh, we like to recreate and and everything else. And I've had that relationship with uh, our great outdoors for a number of years. And, of course, a vital part of uh, the environment in Idaho is Idaho salmon runs. That's why we have what's called a salmon river in Idaho, and, and it was named after the salmon we have the town of Salmon. We have more things named after Salmon in Idaho than probably anywhere else in the world. They're in, an important part of our uh, of our environment. So I'm curious about your your kind of view of the of the four lower snake dams. And so my question to you is: Are the four lower snake dams beneficial? Yeah, the dams have great benefit. They also have environmental costs too. So nothing's either all good or all bad. So. We have to we have to balance those needs, and the question has come up. And I will tell you that you know five or six seven years ago, I would have never thought about breaching the dams. But then I started studying the issue of what's happening to Idaho's salmon runs, and they have been since 1995 on the endangered list, and they continue to go down toward extinction. Idaho's four salmon runs are going to go extinct if we don't do something. So we started looking at, okay, because these dams do have a benefit. How are you going to replace that benefit and make the stakeholders as whole as possible and still remove the dams in order to benefit the return of salmon to Idaho? And that's what led us to this Columbia Basin Initiative that we have been discussing. It's a proposal, not a piece of legislation. It's a proposal that we've been discussing now for a year and a half or so. We want to engage in this conversation with the the people of Idaho because according to the, the Endangered Species Act, either a judge is going to make a decision for us or we in the Pacific Northwest are going to make a decision on how we're going to save these salmon runs and also replace the, the benefit of those dams. And I think that it's a discussion that's been long overdue in, uh, in the Pacific Northwest, and particularly in my district, because, frankly, the salmon that come back to Idaho, most of them come into my district, which is the high-altitude spawning grounds for these salmon. If we don't do anything, we lose the salmon runs. Plus, we end up sending uh, almost a half a million acre feet of water down the river that we can't use in my district for irrigation or to recharge our aquifer or for other purposes. We send that down the river to flush water over four dams that are in the state of Washington. This has been an ongoing issue for a number of years. I've come to it in the last four or five years, started working on this issue and seeing how we might be able to solve this problem. But more than anything, it's a discussion that needs to be had in the Pacific Northwest. The proposal that you have on your website, it talks about breaching the four dams, the four lower snake dams, and then it talks about the things that have to be done. And and the things that have to be done are are to deal with the transportation of product from Idaho and eastern Washington out to the coast because it was going down the river on barges. It has to deal with power production, and it has to deal with the irrigation. But as I read it, those were somewhat unfinished proposals or just kind of not really complete I'm curious about your methodology here of proposing something so enormous to pull out four dams that are doing a lot of things for the humans of of the Pacific Northwest, but then to not have a totally complete outcome set. It feels to me like you're, you're inviting people in. Is that what you're doing? 
how does that move forward in a timely manner to invite people in to not let these fish go extinct? Because that timeline is pushing forward really hard. What's your what's your methodology in getting the people to come to the table and, and fix this? Well, we introduced it for just exactly that purpose, for people to start having this discussion. I don't, you know, I'm not a transportation expert. I'm not an energy expert and whatever. Uh, but the reality is, is when those dams were built, they were built for energy purposes. These are not flood control dams. Some people say you're going to reduce your flood risks by removing those dams. These are not flood control dams. They are run-of-the-river dams. The benefit they have is for production of energy and for barging of products down the river, grain particularly uh, down the river. And the question is, is can you replace those benefits? And you have to remember that, you know, everything that we do on the river can be done differently if we choose to do it. Now, it's going to take some money to replace the the energy production. You can replace that with clean energy production in terms of nuclear power or other types of power. Uh, but it has to be firm power. Can you replace the transportation of the, of the grain down the river? Certainly you can do that. You can find other ways to transport it, as we did before the dams were built, in fact. I expect those people given the realities of what's got to be done in order to save these salmon runs, can come up with a plan. Now, we put a plan in our, our proposal, which is just our thoughts of how you could replace that transportation system with both trucks and trains. And actually, part of the resources in this concept that we've proposed, Northern Idaho farmers would actually be able to get grain down the river at a cheaper cost to them personally than it costs them now to barge. And you have to remember that barging right now is a subsidized cost. The taxpayer subsidizes uh, the cost of the transportation of grain down the river on barges because the cost to the barges and stuff doesn't pay for the operation and maintenance of the dams and so forth. We can do things differently if we start thinking outside of the box about how can we do things differently in, in the Pacific Northwest because the decisions that we make today are going to determine the future in 20 and 50 years from now. And so we've got to be wise in how we do this. And Ultimately, you're going to have to save these salmon. I, I don't think a judge is going to let them go extinct under the Endangered Species Act. Now, the question is whether a judge can order the breaching of the dams or not. I don't know. Well, I've read articles on both sides of that issue, but we'll see. It does cost some money, and that's why our overall plan, we've put in $33 billion to, A, replace the energy. That's going to cost you about $10 billion, and you're going to have to improve the transportation system. It is a bigger proposal than we had ever intended to start with. But I think it's something that's uh, giving the people of the Pacific Northwest something to discuss and debate. The $33 billion that you just spoke of, that, um, as I understand it, you were, you were looking to have that included in the Biden infrastructure bill. That didn't happen. I'm curious what your thoughts are on where some of this funding or all of this funding might come from. Well, you know, it, it's going to have to be appropriated by Congress. We didn't know that there was going to be an infrastructure bill that Congress was going to run when we started all of all of this. And when they started talking about uh, an infrastructure bill, we thought, why not try to include it in that? Well, ultimately, we didn't get it included in that. And this is the first serious proposal that uh, anybody has made on breaching the dams and saving the salmon runs and, frankly, ending the lawsuits because we spend millions of dollars on lawsuits every single year. We're trying to put a moratorium on those lawsuits and let us try to recover the salmon. We have spent $17 billion trying to recover salmon uh, so far. Guess what? It hasn't worked. And as I said, out of my district in Idaho, we send nearly a half a million acre feet of water. That's enough to, to plant 150,000 acres of potatoes. But that 500,000 acre feet of water down the river every year just to flush water over these four dams in the state of Washington. 
we lose that water, we can't use it. That's a huge economic impact in my district. And I keep looking at, okay, what are the benefits to my district? I can't find any. Some people will say, well, you get low-cost Bonneville power from the dams. The reality is is that all the power produced by the Bonneville Power Administration, about 4% of it is produced by these four dams. 4% is all. And out of that 4%, Idaho gets about 8% of that. So we get very little power out of that. And you can replace that power with other power, and you can do it as cheaply as VPA power. So that's kind of the concept. But I will tell you, in all honesty, it is very hard for people to, to grasp because there is such a uh, anti-dam uh, removal uh, sentiment out there. And, and I, I understand it completely because, as I said earlier, you know, five or six or seven years ago, that's exactly where I would have been. But then I've started looking at the facts and, and what needs to be done in order to, to save this iconic species in the Pacific Northwest. In addition to Congressman Simpson's engagement and proposal, Governor Jay Inslee of Washington and U.S. Senator Patty Murray from Washington released their draft report on the salmon situation and the Lower Snake River dams. Their report just came out in June of 2022, this summer, and this is the report that is open to public comment. In today's episode notes, you can find a link to the public comment section. To gain a more clear picture of this draft report, I spoke with a newspaper journalist who is and has been on the ground and at the river at Lewiston, Idaho, just upstream from Lower Granite Dam. This is Eric Barker. I'm Eric Barker. I uh, cover the environment and outdoors for the Lewiston Tribune in Lewiston, Idaho, a small city in north central Idaho. So, yeah, Lewiston, I think it's a great way to say that it's a small city, um, and then it's got this neighboring city right across the Snake River even, uh, Clarkston. Can you describe Lewiston and Clarkston and their relationship to Snake River, to the salmon fish, to to the Lower Granite Dam, and then the, also the reservoir that's created by Lower Granite Dam? Yeah, absolutely. So, as you said, Lewiston and Clarkston sit on opposite sides of the Snake River, named, of course, for Lewis and Clark. It's also the place where the Clearwater River joins the Snake River and is the culmination of slack water created by Lower Granite Dam, which is the fourth of the four Snake River dams, the most inland dam. Um, It's about 25 miles downstream. So it is a reservoir, you know, slack water. We have uh, ports, the Port of Lewiston, Port of Clarkston, Port of Whitman County. Mostly they ship grain and wheat, but there are some other products. Uh, There's sort of a growing cruise ship industry uh, that comes all the way up the Columbia River and the Snake River uh, to here. And every salmon and steelhead that returns to the state of Idaho swims right by Lewiston and Clarkston. They're returning to rivers like the Clearwater and its tributaries, uh, the Salmon River in Idaho, um, uh, parts of the Snake River in Idaho, its tributaries like the Grand Ron in Washington and Oregon and the Amnaha in Oregon. We can fish for salmon and steelhead right in town here, both on the Clearwater and Snake River. And of course, you know, we, we drive or boat upriver to do the same. Um, you don't have to go very far upriver and you're uh, into free-flowing water again. And then a little bit more about that port there. You know, I've heard it called like like the most inland port in the United States because it's so many hundreds of miles away from the saltwater. How important has that that port become to the city of Lewiston and Clarkston since they were uh, kind of inaugurated in the in the 60s and 70s? Well, that is a topic of hot debate. 
it's mostly tugboats pushing barges and, and strings of barges tied together. The ports have been pretty important for farmers here. It is the most efficient way for them to get their crops to overseas markets via ports like the Port of Portland, Longview, and and others. So it's, it's really critical in that way. You, you know, when the dam system was put in, it was really sold that it would lead to uh, a lot of development here, and it'd really be a strong economic engine. That really hasn't happened. It's not that the dams aren't an important segment for uh, parts of the economy, particularly for agriculture, but it hasn't driven uh, a tremendous amount of growth in Lewiston and Clarkston. In fact, you know, as other communities in Idaho have really exploded over the last 20 years, we've kind of just sort of hummed along with fairly minimal growth. You know, I've heard this report that's just come out referred to often as the Murray Inslee Report, but more formally, it's called the Lower Snake River Dams Benefit Draft Replacement Report. Can you tell us what this is? And I'm going to keep calling it the Murray Inslee Report because it's easier to say. Can you tell us what this Murray Inslee Report is? Yes, ostensibly, it's a report that will help Washington Governor Jay Inslee and Senator Patty Murray make a decision about Snake River salmon recovery and whether that should include dam breaching. Is it doable? Uh, is there sufficient support for it? What would the cost and impact be? So it's, it's very much a draft. They're taking public comment on it now. Um, it's not really very much of a prescriptive report. Like it doesn't say this should happen if the dams are breached, but it sort of is a collection of other work on this topic that attempts to come up with a estimate of costs and then sort of things that would need to happen if the dams were breached to, uh, you know, replace the lost hydropower generated at the dams to um, replace or mitigate the irrigation that is done uh, down around the Tri-Cities and Ice Harbor Dam to uh, help farmers and others who use the river for transportation system. How would they get their crops to market with the tug and barge transportation going away? Representative Mike Simpson from Idaho put out sort of a concept last year. His is a little bit more prescriptive, kind of coming up with things like, uh, you know, to help Lewiston and Clarkston, there could be uh, uh, energy storage laboratory sited here. The Inchley and, and Murray Report doesn't really kind of go into those types of things. It's sort of supposed to help them make a decision on this, and that decision is supposed to be coming later this summer. The Murray Inslee Report and Simpsons, I feel like they have some ideas of options here and there, but they're also somewhat um, kind of draft. I mean, they call it a draft, but it's very kind of like a canvas that's uh, only a third done, and there's a lot of room for other people to have input. Murray and Inslee are not taking a stand. They're just saying that this is what we see as a really good option, but we want your input. And then they take that public commentary. What does come after their comment period closes in July? What do they then do with all the the final data? I'm very interested in, in what does happen in, in July. So they're supposed to come out with a decision by July 31st. I don't know really if that's a hard deadline, so it may slip, but sort of what we expect to happen is they will say, yeah, we think the dams can be removed, should be removed, and, and we're going to start working on it. Or perhaps they will say, um, 
you know, it, that shouldn't happen, or, or they will say something like, oh, we need to study this more, and we really don't know. And But, you know, here it is, the middle of June, so that's not that far away, six weeks away or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that comes quick. From from my perspective, a lot of the driving force behind the Murray Inslee report, the Simpson uh, proposal, the just the attention around what to do with the snake dams is because of the looming extinction possibility for some of these salmon fish that come up and down that river. Um, but I'm, I'm also curious around like, how, how do you understand that standing treaty obligations between the United States and the Nez Perce tribe for, from, their, from the, the treaty that was signed in the, in the, in the mid-1800s, how is that also playing into this draft report from Murray and Inslee? It is sort of the driving, one of the main driving forces behind the whole issue. As you mentioned, the Nez Perce and other Columbia River tribes have treaties with the federal government. I think most of them date 1855. In those treaties, the tribes reserve the right to fish for salmon and steelhead in usual and custom places. Because of the treaties, the federal government has a trust responsibility to kind of look out for the tribes and uphold the treaty. So the theory goes, if federal actions, federal moves, such as you know placing dams in the river, were to lead to the extinction of salmon and steelhead, then the government wouldn't be living up to the treaty. So there's there's very much um, a perceived legal lever there, and the tribe, the Nespers tribe, is one of the plaintiffs in a decades-long legal case. Um, others include Oregon and uh, conservation groups and fishing groups. There is sort of this perception out there that a judge, and in this case it would be Judge Michael Simon, could sort of take a larger role, and it's very much questionable whether he could order breaching. I mean, everybody believes that uh, Congress would have to make that decision. But some speculate that he could sort of take control of the river and, and order, you know, more drawdowns, more water to be spilled. And, um, and maybe to such a degree, then that breaching would become sort of more palatable because you would lose a lot of the benefits of slack water. Is Judge Simpson the judge sitting on the case uh, around the Army Corps' role with the salmon? Yeah, that's Judge Simon. Or Simon, Judge Simon. Can you talk about that case? What's the argument? And then the decision is, I guess, expected in this year as well, and how that plays up against this draft from Murray and Inslee. Yeah, so what is going on is is a long-running lawsuit. That, you know, the government comes out with this plan to operate the dams and kind of take measures to make sure that they aren't harming salmon and steelhead. And the the plaintiffs challenge it. Um, They are challenging the latest one. But last fall, the Biden administration kind of said, let's take a time out. Let's talk about this. And so they and the plaintiffs were granted some time in room by Judge Simon to negotiate and um, figure out, you know, how they can reach some solutions for lasting salmon recovery. And so those talks are going on right now. Nobody really knows Hmm. anything about them. Of course, you know, they're court-ordered talks and negotiations, so they're pretty well guarded in secret. But 
that process is supposed to conclude on July 31st, which is also the day that Inslee and Murray are supposed to make their decision. Oh, wow. That's so, <laughs> yeah, two potential things could be coming down uh, in very close proximity to each other that will, will give us a lot of insight about what's what's going to happen in the future. Wow. Okay. Then let's go back to the power. Really, like, like these are these are federal dams inside the state of Washington, but they're federal. So what do you understand? You alluded to it some that, that it doesn't sound like a judge can necessarily pull pull the dams out by court order, that it might be a congressional action. Do you know anything else about like that power and decision to get, to make that choice? Well, so notably, the, the plaintiffs have never asked the judge to breach the dams. We're not sure why, um, perhaps because he might conclude that he doesn't have the authority to do so, and so that would sort of influence the proceedings going forward. I think most close observers of this believe it would take an act of Congress. I mean, money, a great deal of money would have to be appropriated to remove the dams. You know, Congress did authorize the construction of, of the dams. So I, I think it's a pretty safe bet that um, Congress has to play a role here. This is not something that is really before Congress right now. I mean, Representative Mike Simpson came up with his concept. It's not yet legislation that's been introduced. Murray and Inslee are in the midst of their decision, so that could lead to legislation uh, in the future, but we're certainly not there yet. It's, I think, a long road still, probably, if this has to go through Congress, uh, for sure. And, and there are a lot of steps yet to, to be taken. So the four snake dams are doing, they're doing several things. One of the biggest ones, I think, is the jobs. There's just a lot of people who, are, who have jobs that are associated with now these dams that then supports their families. But collectively, four big things. Transportation of goods up and down the river, the jobs, the electrical production, and the irrigation. In a simplistic manner, what is this Murray-Inslee report offering to mitigate the losses of those four things or how to transfer them, replace them with other options? Well, you know, it's not super prescriptive, but it does put a price tag on replacing those various components. For instance, your transportation, it says if the dams were removed, is that a lot of the grain that shipped downriver would move to rail. To make that happen, we definitely have to have a significant upgrade in the rail system. A lot of grain does move by rail right now, but the system probably could not handle moving 100% of it. There would have to be upgrades in road and highway systems because there'd be more grain trucks on the road. Um, When it comes to power, I mean, there's a lot of different studies out there. Generally, they looked at replacing power at the uh, four lower snake dams with sort of a portfolio of of different sources, a lot of renewables, solar, wind, storage, um, conservation, demand response, things like that. There's some that suggest, you know, nuclear and adding in uh, natural gas. Interesting, the Inslee-Murray report says that these kinds of things need to be figured out and in place and proven prior to dams being removed. So, you know, in my mind, that really means if they were to decide today to remove the dams, it, it would take quite some time to figure out, you know, what that mix is, to put it in place, to demonstrate it's working, to, uh, 
you know, to do all the permitting to upgrade roads and rails and, you know, new solar and wind plants, et cetera, et cetera. I'm curious about the humans up there in the Lewis and Clarkson area and what the vibe is that you are hearing, you're seeing, and also, is there a curiosity, like, is there just an, a simple openness to the conversation as opposed to just walking into it being being starkly on one side or the other? Is there also, like, just an openness to learning more about the topic? Well, I, I think there's somewhat of an openness, but um, and, and so we don't have polling on this, but it, it's pretty clear that there's a majority of folks in this area that want to keep the dams there in in favor of them and believe that the dams can stay and the fish will be okay, that that there's other measures we can take and and they will survive. There is a minority of people that support dam breaching. The Lewiston City Council was recently asked to weigh in and it kind of surprised me that ultimately they decided not to take a position I would have guessed that they would have come out with a resolution in favor of keeping the dams. But yeah, I, I think there's a willingness. Uh, we've been talking about this for decades. You know, dam breaching is the idea of whether we should do it or not has been around a long time. People around here are, are mostly able to have reasonable, thoughtful discussions on the topic. Now, with the Inslee Murray report, um, Certainly, there is some criticism of it. The consultants that put the report together uh, did meet with some local entities, ports, cities, especially on the Washington side of the river. And some of those folks really felt like all the topics they brought up uh, were dismissed because they really can't find them in the report. For instance, cities are, are sort of worried about if the dams were to be reached. Of course, what is slack water now would become river and the elevation of the water would drop significantly, and that would affect the pumps they use to take in water and the, the pipes and their permits to release treated wastewater into the river. And, and they see a great deal of expense there, and, and they feel like, you know, that area of the report was, was fairly lacking. Um, the ports have some pretty big criticisms of the report. The full benefits of the transportation system were sort of undersold. One of the things farmers like is the response of the transportation, the barge system is pretty quick. They can make a sale and have their wheat on a barge, you know, a week or so. And it might take much longer to arrange rail transportation. They feel like that really wasn't uh, captured. They feel like some of the benefits of cruise ships visiting the valley wasn't sufficiently captured. Uh, on the other side, and this is within the valley and, and to a great degree without, you know, extending far beyond to people who would like to see the dams breach were, were generally pleased with the report because they think that it shows that while it might be expensive, it's doable and, and there's steps that can be taken to uh, mitigate the impacts. Um, and so they were generally happy with it. All right. Well, is there anything else you feel like would be smart to bring into this conversation? You know, one of the things we haven't talked about is is we've talked a lot of economic impacts. 
of lost power, of lost transportation, lost irrigation. Uh, you know, one of the benefits that people point to is the fishing. I mean, people love to fish throughout the country, and salmon and steelhead are just, gosh, they're amazing creatures. They're really fun to fish for, and people really just go bananas for them, especially when there's a strong salmon run. So they do provide a lot of economic activity, and I don't think that should be lost as well as their ecological role. You know, they bring a lot of marine-derived nutrients far, far inland to what are sometimes pretty sterile stream systems. To end these two episodes, looking at the salmon of Idaho and the Lower Snake River, I want to return to where we started in the first episode, to our conversation with Shannon Wheeler, vice chairman of the Nez Perce tribe. In my research for this topic, in the interviews, in the production phases, I have continuously been brought back to the relationship between the Salmon and the Nez Perce people. Here, Vice Chairman Wheeler explains how the treaty signed by the Nez Perce with the United States government is related to Salmon. Before I came out, I, I read through the treaty, the, the words of it all. And, and in that, I don't see the word Salmon in there, but I see the, the expression of the, the, I don't know if the word right was used, but like that hunting and gathering of 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 the animals on the lands and the fish from the waters will, will be guaranteed forever. Can you speak through that expectation and help me understand what you believe the people, the Nez Perce people who signed that treaty, what is it, 1855, some, some 170 years ago, what, what they believed they were, they were going to gain in return and what they trusted would come to them and then to you two sitting here? And to all the people you represent, what what they believed would come. So our so our understanding of of nature and and the way of life as as we existed with nature is what we reserved in that in that treaty, and that was the big portion of we would be able to still travel to all of our places and be able to harvest and to be able to trade in these areas, and that's. That's what was reserved for us is that way of life. And then it goes back to our obligation once again to, to the land, to pick a spoon, uh, you know, our mother, the earth, and all that it has in it. And, we, and by granting the United States rights in our lands is what we did. And our expectation is that in perpetuity, we would be able to enjoy and realize these rights that were reserved, this way of life. It doesn't specify salmon in that, but salmon's included in that way of life because that's all of our usual and accustomed fishing areas and all of our gathering and hunting areas. All of the travel is such an important piece in that because that allows us freedom of to move about freely. And that's what was reserved and granting the United States the right to come to our land under the treaty and preserving what we already had. And, and that's, that's what we lived off of. That's the umbrella that we live under today. And that's what we're not being able to realize in perpetuity now is is dependent upon a federal government that uh, has installed these dams on the rivers that are affecting that in perpetuity of 
always being able to fish at all usual in the custom areas. And what we bargained for was in abundance. We bargained for our way of life should not change because of this treaty. And under the canons of construction of law, when two parties make an agreement, one party cannot do to the other party to harm or to minimize their portion of the agreement. And when the dams were built, those have demonstrated that they kill fish, that they have reduced the numbers of, of salmon. And that's, that's our ability to fish at all usual and custom areas. But we're not realizing those numbers because one place that I fish on a yearly basis, the South Fork of the Salmon River, we were allowed to catch eight fish there last year, not per person, for the whole tribe, eight fish. And, and under the canons of construction of law, that's affecting our ability to realize our end of the bargain. Is, uh, is breach the, the position of the, of the Nez Perce tribe? Yes, it has been since in the 1990s. And we've understood it then. We've understood the science then. We understand it now. And even more so now with changing ocean conditions and, and, and the climate change, more than ever now it needs to be done. I find there's a lot of opposition to the breach. I mean, obviously, because they're still they're still here. You're talking. You've been, the, the 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 tribe has said since the '90s. I've heard other other pushes since the '90s to breach these dams. But I'm curious, like, w- what your thoughts are around any statements of opposition. You're here. You've been here your whole life. A whole lineage of people before you. What is what is your thoughts on that on these on this opposition that just wants to keep these things in place and keep these systems going? Well, status quo is uh, is always tough to change. And, you know, the old uh, 40 acres and the mule, you know, that thing is, you know, my grandfather did it, my dad did it, I do it. Uh, those, those things are hard to change. Uh, but, you know, with uh, the best available science and, and uh, our experience that we have with new technologies, the 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 world itself has changed. Uh, Congressman Simpson proposed a set framework for change. Uh, of course, status quo uh, is is resistant, and and to that resistance, you know, you, it, it's difficult for people to change and to understand. And most of the time, it's based on money. It's not based on life. And, and life should be what we base everything on. And, but uh, it's, if it's based on money, then, then politics are involved. And, and when politics get involved, it, it, it changes the way that, that the process moves along. And the Columbia River system of operations, the, the federal system, the dam system, operates underneath those federal action agencies that are out there, the Army Corps of Engineers, the Bonneville Power Administration, NOAA, and Bureau of Reclamation. You know, those federal action agencies, they, they know what's going on as far as returns. And, but the general population of status quo, whether you're an agriculture interest or transportation interest, you know, they, they can do things differently. Uh, and and for the betterment of who we are as a country, 
you should want to do things differently. And it's not only, it's not for us right now. It's not for us. It's for the future. It's for the future generations, the future Americans, the future uh, people that will inhabit this country uh, to improve on what we do. Technology is changing things in this world rapidly. Things are done fast. People act fast. They talk fast. They move fast. And sometimes those that are maybe stuck back a, a ways aren't willing to move forward uh, in that manner. We as a, as a tribe, we like to remain grounded to nature, but we also enjoy turning our lights on, right? I mean, we, we enjoy charging our cell phone. We enjoy things like that. We enjoy driving our vehicles, but can we do them differently? Yes, we can. And that's what technology brings. That's what the experience tells us, the science tells us, and the technology shows us that we can do things differently. But the status quo, sometimes it's hard to change because this is the way that I've done it for, you know, three generations. And if we can get them to understand that uh, there is a better life out there and the, the way that we do things, it'll probably help your bottom line. It ain't going to hurt your bottom line. I, I can hear, hear a retort out there that is, that is like if you as vice chairman wheeler wheeler feel that uh the status quo should change then why can't the tribe change and not expect fish how how do you how do you reply to a retort that says if if you expect technology technology to change and status quo to change then why can't we expect the tribe to change and not want to have the fish that they used to have? Why can't the tribe get used to the not having the amount of fish they used to have? We have changed. We have changed. We signed a treaty and we did change. And, and all we asked for was a way of life that should have been guaranteed to us uh, through this process. So the tribe has changed to that point. Uh, the, the issues that are at hand now are the changes that were made to the environment that affect our ability to live in this way of life. Until the first dams were built, our way of life was still being realized at that time. And there was agriculture going on at that time. There was transportation going on at that time. So, so we have changed into this world of where we're at today. And all we're asking for is we need we need what was guaranteed to us back we need to be able to to experience what was realized we gave up 13 million acres for this bargain for this way of life we expect to to be treated the same way a snake river size thank you goes out to jay hesse at the nez Perce fish department Representative Mike Simpson from Idaho, Eric Barker from the Lewiston Tribune, to Vice Chairman Shannon Wheeler, and to all the people behind these guests who help arrange our interviews. You can find lots of information online related to this topic of Chinook salmon, and in today's episode notes are links to material covering the topic, including the Murray Inslee Report with public comment options. That comment deadline is July 11. Today's advertising sponsor is Nissan and the Denver area Nissan dealers. You can find a dealer locator link in today's notes. All of our music is created and performed by Gene Reiniger. Be in touch anytime. Hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining the River Radius. Radius.